Amen. Good morning. Glad to be here with you today. Uh, th- this is the spit zone, and so this is dangerous. We usually have tarps down, so I'm glad that you guys are far away from this thing right here. Um, I was 17 years old, and uh, hopefully this works. Does this work? This doesn't work. And uh, this here's some proof of that. This is 17-year-old Josh Wilson. He, he's much of the same person as this picture. I don't know who told him to do black-on-black suit. That wasn't a very good idea, but... Um, and having grown up in a Christian, non-Christian, unchurched home, my life progressed in, in many of the, the, the ways that you might expect. I was this completely obnoxious, self-absorbed, jock kind of teenager, insecure, nervous, uh, angry. Um, I, I would go party on the weekends. I would get drunk uh, to do two things. One, to try to get people to like me. Do you remember that stage in your life whenever you would do things just so people would like you? Adults don't do that anymore. Only teenagers do that, right? And so I, w- I would do that, and, and so to, I, w- I would do these things to try to earn people's favor, to get them to like me, but also probably do some of these things to maybe numb some of that feeling of dissatisfaction or loneliness or brokenness that I was feeling inside of myself. Um, I, I, I was, like many te- teenagers, obsessed with with relationships and, and sex and girls and all these things, took things too far, uh, looking for meaning and hope and satisfaction. I wasn't anti-faith. In fact, if you would have asked 17-year-old Josh Wilson, are you a Christian? I would have said, of course I'm a Christian. I mean, this is the South. Everybody's a Christian here, right? Um, I wasn't anti-faith, but I was very, very sensitive to the fact that I didn't want anyone telling me how I ought to live my life, Right? Don't tell me what to do. You don't own me. And there was even a time when I confronted a guy who was speaking at one of those Christian clubs they have in schools, and he was sharing the gospel with people. And he went up to this guy, and he started sharing the gospel with him. And, and I became incredibly offended that this guy was sharing the gospel with another guy because I felt like he was forcing his beliefs on to this other kid. So I confronted him, like, hey, you can't do that. That's not going to cut it. It's not going to cut it with me. And it was in the middle of that swirl of sin and loneliness and searching that that 17-year-old kid, that kid that you see on the screen, that all he needed was someone to bring it up. I just needed someone to engage me. I, I was starving for something real. I was starving for, for genuine relationships. I, 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 I was primed for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so God started this process where he started sending people in my life who, who he just used to chisel away at this rough, hard exterior that I had. I was in, in, in a trig class my junior year of high school, and every time I'd walk in, there'd be these three girls kind of cackling around. And, and every time I would go in, they would, they would invite me to church every time. And uh, one of those three girls ended up being my wife later on. She's right here up in the front row. Uh, but... but it, it was just this amazing thing. I, I would go to class, and these girls just wanted to share Jesus with me. And so I said, Josh, we have this youth ministry that meets on a Sunday morning. Would you come with us? And, and I never went at that point in my life, but every time they asked, it was like a chisel, just chipping, chipping away at me. And then I, I had a, a, another friend. He was on the football team with me, and he was who you might consider the spiritual guy on the football team. And he started telling me about these things called small groups. And they had these cell groups that were, that were just for 
teenage guys that, that you get together and you study the Bible and you talk about real things and it's not just superficial relationships. And, and he started telling me about these and I was intrigued. Something inside, oh, this is really interesting. I, ne- I never went at th- that point, but again, something was being chiseled away inside of me. And then finally, I was at this state competition and I was in a hotel room in Hot Springs with three other guys. And, and one, one guy... His name's Tad. He, he ended up feeling prompted, he was a Christian, prompted by the Spirit to engage me in spiritual conversation. I, looking back on it, I think Tad even told me he was trying to talk to the other guy about Jesus. So he started having this really clunky, imperfect, not so great gospel conversation with two other high school guys. And he ended up asking a pretty simple question. He, he said, hey, what do you guys think about Jesus? And I can't tell you why to this day, but that night, I was, I was interested. I, it's the first time in my life that I remember being spiritually hungry. Do you remember that moment in your life? The first moment where you felt some sort of appetite for something more than you had been experiencing. I was spiritually hungry. He shared the gospel with me. I later ended up following, giving my life to Jesus. And after that, I was baptized. This is, this is Josh Wilson, early teens baptism here. He had a pretty good beard, too. I kind of like that. We are in this series that we've been in for the past several weeks that we've titled Reach Your Circle. And if you haven't gotten the point thus far, I want to give it to you at the beginning here, and we'll keep coming back to this today. We think that followers of Jesus are called to live missional lives, Lives that are pointed outward, lives that are intended to share the good news that we have experienced with other people, to make disciples of those who are in our circle of influence. And and the unfortunate thing is, I I think sometimes we get really comfortable and complacent in the church, and we get really happy with with transfer, you know, church growth through church transfer, instead of being a part of the God stories, like 17-year-old Josh Wilson. That maybe God might want to use me to be the one to engage someone about Jesus. And so we, we, we're talking about this. We want to teach on this. We think that this is a relevant issue in our culture. Nathan Allen taught last week, and he quoted a study from Barna Research. And, and a, a, a similar part of that study later on said 47% of millennials, under 35s, believe it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. 47, that's half of all under 35s. It's, that it's immoral, it's wrong for me to share my beliefs. For the same reason that probably I was offended that my friend was sharing Christ with someone at, at one point. It's because there's, we don't want anybody infringing upon our personal rights. That's why we're doing this series, because we have this audacious thought that maybe God might actually want to use you, me, to reach them, us. Maybe he wants to use you to reach your friends or your neighbors or the people you work with. He wants to turn people's lives upside down and restore all kinds of brokenness through you. That's why we're doing this series. And this morning, we're we're talking about invitation. I would not be a Christ follower today if it were not for someone inviting me, inviting me to have a conversation, inviting me to believe in Jesus, inviting me to church. 
God uses invitation to woo people, to draw people, to chisel away at people's hearts so that they are open, amiable for him. And so this this is not a hard concept for us to grasp. Yeah, we should invite people into our lives, into our homes, to our church, to experience the things that we're experiencing, but it is an incredibly hard concept to live, isn't it? It's not hard to grasp, but it's hard to live. And so before we dive into this, let me just pray over us, ask the Holy Spirit to be here with us today, and then we'll go from there. Lord, thank you that as much as we want to be a part of wooing people, you are the one who ultimately woos, and you have wooed all of us here today into this room. You have drawn us a variety of circumstances and stories, the tapestry of many lives has gathered us here in this space today. And Lord, we pray for encounter. We want to encounter you. We want to experience the goodness, the mercy, the, 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 the reality of the divine God in this space, Lord. So come and speak to us. Open your word to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please open them up to John chapter 4. This is our text that we're going to be anchoring in today, starting with today. Uh, We'll start in verse 3. And and really this passage, it's a long passage, I'll read it in just a second. This passage is Jesus as the consummate evangelist. Jesus as the master faith sharer. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at this story and I want to talk about maybe some things that Jesus is doing as he is sharing his faith with this woman at a well. And then I want to pivot from there and and then talk about what are some things that are maybe preventing us from doing some of the things that Jesus is doing here. And so what is Jesus doing? Why don't we do what Jesus does? That's the talk today, okay? And so please follow along with me in your Bibles. Let me read God's word here for you this morning. Here's what it says. Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee. He had passed through, he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans, John tells us. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not have to be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I I, I have no husband. 
And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you are now with is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that it is in Jerusalem. That's the place that people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem will be where you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation comes from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come See a man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out from the town and came to him. And verse 39 says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. This is God's word. Amen? Powerful story. What can we learn from Jesus as the evangelist in this story? Seven things. Thing number one, Jesus went to a place that people avoided. He went to a place that people avoided. As John points out in this story, Jews and Samaritans had a bit of a complicated relationship. Samaritans were, were a, a racial half-breed. They were, Samaritans were, were a half-breed of, of Jewish people and Assyrians. The Assyrian Empire came into Israel at one point in their history, conquered the land, took wives, and, and, and the Samaritans came from those mixed relationships. And so Jewish people despised Samaritans. They had disagreements about theological issues like where to worship. The, the Samaritans thought you worship on Mount Gerizim, and the, the Israelites say, no, we worship on Mount Sinai. And, and so Jews and Samaritans don't mesh real well. And, and, and the interesting thing in this story is that Jesus is coming from this area, if you can see it on the map, down here is Jerusalem in Judea, and he's trying to get back up to Galilee to do some ministry. And you can see that the quickest route to Galilee is right through Samaria, specifically through this town called Sychar. But what would often happen is Jewish people, because of their disdain for Samaritans, they would rather take three times the journey, three times the length, and they would go through this region called Perea so that they wouldn't have to go through Samaria. But Jesus went places that other people wouldn't go. In fact, verse 4 says, Jesus had to go through Samaria. Interesting. Do you think it was because the road to Perea was closed that day? No. It's because Jesus had a divine appointment with a woman at a well. Jesus went to places that no one goes to. Jesus went to the people that no one goes to. That's the first thing from this story. Maybe 
God has divine appointments for you and for me if we go to places that people normally avoid, right? Next point. Jesus spoke with a person that people usually avoid, uh, that people usually avoid. Jesus gets to the well, and he's tired, and he sends his disciples into town to grab some food, and then along comes this Samaritan woman, and John tells us that it's about the sixth hour, which would be right at about high noon, and the interesting thing about this is that this is not the, the best time to go get water. Usually women would go early in the morning or late in the evening because those were the cooler times of day. But here you have this singular, lonely, conspicuously alone woman going in the middle of the day when nobody else is there. And so she comes up to Jesus. And, and later we find out that, that her aloneness is, is perhaps most likely because of the promiscuous lifestyle that she's living. She's been shunned or shamed by other women and other people in the community because she's had five husbands and the dude she's with now is not her husband. And so instead of putting up with all the ridicule and shame, she goes at a time when she can be by herself. But she's not by herself, is she? Because sitting there is this Jewish rabbi and he starts talking with her. And I want you to notice that Jesus, despite the fact that she's a Samaritan, and despite the fact that he already knows about her immoral, sinful, promiscuous lifestyle, Jesus intentionally engages her. And this is the first invitation I want you to see in this story. Jesus invites her to have a conversation. Jesus invites her into dialogue. Jesus never avoids people. Jesus is intentional. He engages her. I read something helpful in a book a few weeks back by evangelism professor Alvin Reed, and he makes the suggestion in his book that in encounters like this, when you are meeting people by a well, whenever you're having potential divine appointments, that we need to view those divine appointments like a traffic light. And, 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 and with a traffic light, green, green light means what? Go, right? And red light means stop, and yellow means drive faster, right? Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yield, slow down, whatever, right? And so, and in his book, what Reed says is typically we, what we do when we interact with people is that we assume the woman at the well is a red light. We get to the well and we say, whoop, we got to hit the brakes. I got I to gotta evaluate the terrain. I need to make sure that this person is open. And we start doing this kind of dance to see if I should talk about Jesus with the person or not, especially if we're motivated to do this kind of thing. And so, so he says, oftentimes we start with a red light mentality, red light first. And, and he makes the argument in his book that we need to flip the script on that. And instead of assuming everybody's a red light, we should assume people are a green light. We should walk through our, our daily life, the people that we're engaging, the people that we work with, and we need, to, we need to assume, hey, it's green light, go. And if they push back, maybe it's a yellow light. If, if there's an obvious stop, hit the brakes. But we miss potential divine appointments and opportunities because we say no first. We stop first. We hit the brakes instead of hitting the gas and saying, green light, go. And I love that Jesus here is a green light first kind of God, isn't he? 
He just hits the gas. He starts engaging this woman. He's intentional with people, and he wants us to be the same way. Number three, Jesus used analogies to communicate spiritual truth. This is what Nathan Allen talked about last week from Acts 17. We use the cultural products and, and, the, and the metaphors that, that, that we relate to every day as ways to communicate spiritual truth. Paul in Acts 17 quotes Grecian poets. Jesus is at a well and he starts talking about water and wouldn't you know it, he turns the conversation to a conversation simply about water to a conversation about something much more profound, living water, that if you drink it, you'll never be thirsty again. And so Jesus used these analogies to communicate spiritual truth. We all do this every day. We love doing this. Hey, a great exercise for you to do is pick your favorite movie, pick your favorite song, pick something up, your favorite book that you love and go look for the gospel threads in each of these things. And just start pulling on those threads so that when you have conversations with people, you can say, you know what? I'm a total nerd. I love superhero movies. I love superhero movies. Do you know the reason why I think I love superhero movies? It's because every person is longing for some rescuer who's willing to sacrifice it all to save people. That's why I love superhero movies. I just see Jesus in the Avengers. And so do that for your favorite whatever and look for those threads and pull them. Jesus was a master at this. We need to do that as well. Number four, Jesus stayed focused. He, as he engaged this woman, I want you to notice multiple times she tries to change the subject, doesn't she? She tries to, she tries to wiggle her way out of this. The first thing she does is she, say, she, she goes to social issues. Whoa, 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 hold on. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Why are we even talking right now? <laughs> And then she goes to the theological issues where she, where she says, hey, um, Jews think we should worship on Sinai. We think we should worship on Mount Gerizim. And she keeps trying to go to all of these peripheral sidestep issues. But Jesus has these piercing, laser-focused eyes, doesn't he? He just stays right on mission, right on task. Every time she tries to wiggle, he brings it back. He brings it back. He brings it back. And I think that we sometimes waste precious time with people because we want to spend more time chasing either theological rabbits or, or engaging, talking about social issues when really the thing that we need to be doing is talking to people about Jesus. Talking to people about Jesus. And, and don't get me wrong, theology is important. Is theology important? Everybody say yes. The, all theology means is what, what you believe about God. What, who is God? So is that important? Yes. And, and are social issues important? Everybody say, yeah, the Bible has a lot to say about varying social issues. The problem is when we try to get, we, we put all of these secondary theological issues or these social issues as the primary thing that we want to talk about when we engage people, we miss divine appointments. We miss gospel conversation. People, people need to hear about Jesus. They don't need to hear about your view on abortion right now. They don't. We should talk about abortion. God is pro-life from the womb to the tomb. But we need to talk about Jesus, how he forgives and saves and sustains. That's what people are hungry for. That's what people ultimately need. Amen? Okay. Jesus stayed laser-focused. We need to stay laser focus. Number five, Jesus offered the woman life. This is the second invitation in this story. What was the first invitation? He invited her 
to talk. He invited her into a conversation. The second invitation is, he says, if you knew who it was that was talking to you, you would have asked him, and he would have given you uh, water that if you drink it, you'll never be thirsty again. And so he's inviting her to respond to some of the spiritual truths that he's throwing out there. We're not just talking about water here. We're talking about something that really satisfies. This is a call to respond. This is an invitation to spiritual life. At some point in your conversations or interactions with people, God may provide you with the opportunity to ask someone to respond in some way, to ask someone uh, to, to go deeper in some way. I think the problem that we get into is that we think that evangelism means that it's always just walking someone across the finish line. That if I don't lead someone to Christ, that I'm not actually sharing my faith with someone. And that's just wrong. That is not how reality works. It's not how it works. That instead of having this mentality where the response has to be them coming to Christ, we need to adopt a mentality that says, I need to ask this person to respond where they are right now. So it may just be, hey, are, do, do you want to have a deeper conversation with me about who Jesus is. I'd love, I'd love to talk about this stuff. Or the, the response may be, hey, I've got this church. They're a little weird. They've got this redheaded guy. He yells sometimes. He's sweating. It's disgusting. But, but I would love for you to come and, and just to see what our spiritual community looks like. Maybe that's the level that people need to engage in. Or maybe, God willing, some, at some point, someone might be ready for you to say, do you really, you've heard all the truths. Are you ready to follow? Are you ready to believe in Jesus? Sometimes we're afraid. It'll sound crass to say it like this. Sometimes we're afraid to ask for the cell, to call someone to action, to invite someone to take some kind of step that is a kind of risk that maybe they would never be willing to take if someone didn't engage them. Jesus did that. Do you want to drink water? that if you drink it, you'll never be thirsty again? She's like, give me some of that water. I want some of that. I want some of that. Number six, Jesus proved himself with miraculous knowledge. God, God loves to show off, doesn't he? He loves to show off. And, and we, at this church, we believe God still does this kind of thing. The Holy Spirit still prompts uh, this kind of response with people. We just took some of our staff and some of our elders to a, a prayer conference in Knoxville, Tennessee. And it was this beautiful time where people were gathered and worshiping and they had these prayer teams lined up around the room. It was very God-centered, very word-centered. But we had people come to our group and pray over each of us individually. And they would pray very specific, penetrating things about my life and about my marriage. And I'm like, how do you know me? And they're like, we don't know you, but God knows you. And it encouraged our heart. It like built us up. It chiseled away at some of that hardness that sometimes develops because of the cynicism in, the, in this world. God still does that kind of thing. And sometimes it'll be very normal. What, what, what might happen for you is you might get a well-timed text from a friend where you just get it at the right moment. And, and, and you're like, oh, man, God is just speaking to me. Or at, at, at the end of this service, when we have our communion time, someone may come up to you that you don't know. It's kind of weird. They may, they may come up to you, and they may give you a Bible verse and just say, I just felt like God told me to give you this verse to encourage you. Someone did that after first service with me. Because God is all of the time trying to chisel away 
at our hearts to prove himself, to show that he's real. Sometimes it'll be very normal, and sometimes it may feel a little supernatural. The Holy Spirit is alive and well, and he's moving in the church, and he wants to move even more in this church. And so, by the way, if you feel that prompting, God may be inviting you to have a divine appointment with someone who needs to hear something. Take a risk. Green light, go. Don't, don't assume red light first. Green light, go. Jesus proved himself with miraculous knowledge. Number seven, last one. Jesus told the woman that he was the Messiah. And, and, and the reason I love this is because Jesus, this is very early on in his ministry. Not many people have heard this message about who he is, that, that this is the Messiah. But here you have this lonely, shamed, promiscuous woman who's at a well by herself, and she hears the most important message in the history of the world, that he's the Messiah. And what is her response? Do you remember from the text? What does she do? She came to the well with jugs of water to fill the jugs up, but when she hears this message about who Jesus is, what does she do with the jugs? She, she leaves the jugs behind. The jugs are gone. I don't care about getting water anymore. I've got to go tell everybody about this. She leaves the jugs. She runs into town to the people who have been shaming her. And she says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. It's the third invitation in this story. Come and see. Come and see. Come and see. And I want you to notice, she didn't have to manufacture desire to tell people about Jesus. Her invitation was an overflow of her experience of Jesus. Let me say that again. Her invitation to others was an overflow of her experience of Jesus. You don't have to manufacture desire if you're sitting in front of the one who desires your heart more than anything else. So instead of trying to muster up the energy to go share your faith with people, which is what some of us type A people might do after services like this, you know, I, okay, I got to go do it now. What we need to do is go encounter Jesus, and then it flows out of our life. Jesus was a master at this, and, and she has the perfect response. You leave your agenda. You leave the jug behind. Whatever plans you had before, put them away. Stop. It's over. Go tell people about who this Jesus is. And so let's pivot now and let's ask, why, why don't we do this? Why don't we do some of the things that Jesus is doing here? What, what, are, some re, what are some barriers to our own faith sharing that we need to think about? I think the first one is what I'm going to call expressive individualism. It's not a, a term I coined, but lots of people are using it. And let me define it for you. Expressive individualism is valuing our own unique self-expression over and above everyone and everything else. Some famous slogans that might express this type of thinking are, you be you, or be true to yourself, or follow your heart, find yourself. It is the quest of every Disney princess. It is the thesis of every self-help book that if I could just find myself in myself, then everything will go right in the world. That is the heart, the epitome uh, of this, this mentality. Diet Coke has recently started running these ads. Have you guys seen these ads where they're targeting millennials? And, and the ad slogan for this campaign is, because I can. 
because I can. And really the idea behind this phrase is, I can express myself however I want, however I choose, especially through the incredibly subversive act of drinking a diet Coke. The Gospel Coalition had a great article about expressive individualism back in October. And in that article, they quote Australian pastor Mark Sayers. And he has, has a list of seven identifying characteristics of an individualistic society. And I want to read those for you because it impacts how we do evangelism. What are the seven uh, statements that define an individualist culture? Number one, the highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, or self-expression. Number two, traditions, religions, and regulations that restrict individual freedom, happiness, and self-expression must be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. You can't tell me what I should be. And any institution that tells me what, what I should be needs to go away. Number three, the world will inevitably improve as the scope of individual freedom grows. Technology in particular, the internet, will motor this progression towards utopia. Anybody who's ever been on Twitter knows this is a lie. <laughs> the, 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 the internet is not bringing utopia, it's bringing polarization. Guess what? Do you know why? Because when the highest good is, is an internal compass of spiritual truth, when truth is in here, anytime someone disagrees with you, you're not disagreeing with ideas. Let's all search for truth together. You're disagreeing with the heart of a person. That's why we're pulling away from each other. Truth is not something that we try to find out here together. It's either you're with me or you're against me. You're either with my truth or you're not with my truth. Number four, the primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for freedom and self-expression. Any deviation from this ethic of tolerance is dangerous and must not be tolerated. Ironic. Number five, humans are inherently good. Number six, large-scale structures and institutions are suspicious at best and evil at worst. Number seven, forms of external authority are rejected and personal authenticity is lauded. Question, why might this type of thinking be a barrier to sharing our faith? Because if you believe that self-expression is the highest good, why should we ever share our faith with anyone? Because the goal would be, I don't want you to be like Jesus, I want you to be like you. So, we, so it makes sense that 47% of millennials think that it's immoral to share your personal beliefs with the intention of converting someone because the very act of conversion is an attack on self-identity. The very act of conversion is an attack on self the gospel does not say, you be you. It says, come and die. The gospel does not say human beings are inherently good. It says human beings are, are inherently broken and need saving. The gospel message is offensive to an individualist society because it calls us to be something more than merely ourselves. As much as, as into the Enneagram and personalities, we're really into ourselves. But God wants you to be more than yourself. He wants you to be like Jesus. He wants you to be like him. The highest good is not for you to be your authentic self. We talk about authenticity a lot here at New Heights. Authenticity is extremely important. It's just not the highest good. Because I can authentically be a jerk. I can. 
I can authentically sin and complain. The most authentic me could be the person that, that you would least want to be around. And so authenticity is not the highest aim. Being like Jesus is. Amen? <coughs> True love for someone isn't desiring for them to be their authentic self. It's desiring for them to be like Jesus. Number two, margin. Margin. The second barrier to sharing our faith in the world today, margin. We live in a hectic, fast-paced, microwave, tyranny of the urgent kind of society. We have no time anymore. Amen? You feel it? You feel it? We keep ourselves so busy doing so many things. We've got to have our kids in all of the sports, and we've got to go try all the new restaurants that the Waltons are bringing to Bentonville, and we've got to go do all the things. And I want you to notice that they are not, they're not all bad things. There's a lot of really good, we do a thousand good things, don't we? But they're not all God things. He's not calling us to do all of the things. In fact, if you're saying yes to everything, you're not leaving margin in your life. You're not leaving margin in your life to share your faith with others. We have no emotional margin because we stay plugged into social media all the time. We live our lives vicariously through the social feeds of other people. And then we compare ourselves to others and we think, man, my life is terrible. I wish my life was as good as X, Y, or Z. And what you're doing is comparing yourself to a curated version of someone else's life. And so you're emotionally tapped. You're tapped out. You have no margin at that point to cultivate your own inner life because you're just connected. You're just plugged in all the time. John Ortberg, in his book, The Life You Always Wanted, says, hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day, and he coins the phrase, hurry sickness. He says, love and hurry are not compatible because love always takes time, and time is the one thing hurried people do not have. Whew. You're saying yes to a lot of things. Maybe you're saying yes to a lot of good things. But what are the God things? What do you need to say no to? Jesus was always on mission, but he always had margin. Number three, fear. Fear. Fear is a powerful thing, isn't it? Some of the best politicians and leaders know that fear is the thing that will motivate people almost more than anything else. If I could just make them afraid, if I could just make them afraid, they'll do whatever I say. One of the side effects of a 24-hour news cycle is that it can cause us to be suspicious or fearful of anyone, anyone we don't know. If they start painting caricatures of people who look differently than us or maybe think a little bit differently than us, and then when we see those people out and about, we immediately say, I can't be around them, those people. They're not safe. We experienced some of this. We just traveled to North Africa. We're in predominantly uh, Muslim countries, and we were the different ones. And so, so it's very easy to caricature people. And what you forget is all of these people are made in the image. They have a thumbprint of a creator on them. And fear causes us to create people into others, the other person over there. Fear. And when we get into that mindset, we don't share our faith. We, we cloister. 
We, we, we build up really high walls. We hide in our, in our little rooms because we can't go out there. Because if I go out there, those people may influence my kids. Whew, I don't want my kids around those people. Or those people may get some of their sin stuff on me. It's kind of how we think. And we, we, we get into this fear-based place. Fear cripples faith sharing. Cripples it. But here you have Jesus who's not afraid to go where people won't go, and he's not afraid to be with people that people wouldn't normally spend time with. And Jesus is the opposite of fear. Fear is the opposite of faith, people. It's not disbelief, it's fear. It's fear. And so Jesus comes, and he models something completely different. He says this. He has this, he, he calls Matthew into his family, this sinful tax collector, extortionist who, who's been sold out by the Roman Empire. And then Matthew says, guys, I met this Jesus person. You got to come over to my house for dinner. And he has all of his sinful friends there. And then the Pharisees, they get upset. They're like, why is Jesus spending time with all the sinful people? And Jesus says, I have not come for the healthy or the righteous. I've come for the sick. I've come for the sick. And when we adopt fear, we just want to be around healthy people. We want to put on our masks. We want, to have, we want to wash our hands all the time. We never want to be around the sick. But I want to tell you, Jesus came for the sick. Jesus came for the unloved. Jesus came for those who are different than us. And you are the one that he wants to send. His method has always been men and women. That has been his mechanism from the beginning of time to reach people who need the hope and truth and life that can only come in Christ. And so he's calling us from fear into courage. There's this great quote from a movie called We Bought a Zoo. Has anyone seen this movie? It's this great movie. Matt Damon's in it. And uh, at the end of the movie, he's, he's coaching his son, who, who, who he's having to give a little bit of a pep talk to. And he says, sometimes all you need is 20 seconds of insane courage, just 20 seconds of embarrassing bravery, and I promise you something great will come of it. And what tends to happen is we, we don't think of ourselves as brave people, and that's okay. You don't have to think, I'm a really brave person, but anybody can be brave for 20 seconds. And so next time you engage someone who doesn't know Jesus, next time you are prompted to invite someone into a conversation, into your life, uh, to church perhaps, instead of having a red light stop first mentality where you're afraid of them because they may reject you or because they're so different from you that you don't even know how to relate to them. Instead, maybe you should adopt a mindset that says, green light go, I'm going to be embarrassingly brave for 20 seconds. I'm going to see what God does. I think if we do that, we will see more God stories. We will have more divine appointments than we ever had before. Green light go, green light go, green light go. Drop the jars, invite, woo, draw in. So three things I want us to think about as we walk away. The first thing is pray. The prayers of righteous people are powerful and effective. Elijah was like, like a, man, a man like you and I, but when he prayed, God stopped the rain from falling. And so when we pray, especially for our non-believing neighbors and friends and coworkers, 
maybe, just maybe, the Holy Spirit is chiseling people, chiseling away at them. Number two, be intentional. And I kind of hate this word because intentional doesn't really mean anything unless you define it. And, and so here's what I mean by be intentional here this morning. If you have your handout or a journal or a piece of paper, I want you to pull it out right now, open it up to a blank page. Do it with me. This is not, this is not a rhetorical exercise. If you've got it, do it. And I want you to draw a circle on the back of your handout. Use a pen. Just draw a circle. We're being intentional right now. We're being intentional. Some of you are like, I'm intentionally not doing what you're saying. <laughs> That's okay. I'll, I'll pray for you. Draw a circle. And instead of writing the 50 people that you, that you have in your life, I'm going to pray right now because we believe in prayer. Just really quickly. And I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would bring to our minds one person. One person in your circle that God wants you to engage, to invite, to be around, to go there with. And I just want you to write that person's name in your circle. Maybe it's someone you work with. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's someone you see at the coffee shop all the time. But I want you to write the person's name in there. Let me, let me do that real quick. If you guys want to start playing anytime you can, we're about to finish. Lord, would you show us in, in this room who... Who's in our circle? Who do you want us to, to reach? God, sometimes we, we have all of these lofty ideas and presuppositions, and sometimes we, we, we write you off thinking that, that it's us who, who had, it's me that had the thought, oh, I, I should go share with this person, but Lord, I know that I'm not that good. I know that my motives are not that pure. And so if there are people that you're bringing to mind right now, I pray that we'd realize, Lord, that's you speaking to us. You want to use us. We are the mechanism. So show us right now who those people are. In Jesus' name. So just write the person's name down in your journal, on your handout. Take it home. Tape it on your mirror. When you see it, pray for these people. When you think about them, maybe God will inspire you to send them a text or send them a Bible verse or invite them to church. That's my last thing. If invitation is as big of a deal as we're talking about, and I think it is because God uses invitation to woo people to faith, maybe God is going to prompt you to invite this person into some deeper understanding of Jesus. Just one person. Like, what if every person just shared with one person, really shared, really did it? What might happen? So maybe God wants you to engage this person to talk about Jesus. Maybe God wants you to invite this person to Easter. Uh, Easter is a very culturally friendly time to invite people to do spiritual things. There is, a, there is a handout in your chair or in the chair next to you that has details for our Easter service. And I don't think that the epitome of sharing your faith is inviting people to church. But my personal experience and the stories I've heard from many of you have been someone cared enough about me to invite me into their spiritual community, and it changed my life. That's where I met the Holy Spirit. That's where I met God. And so would you be maybe embarrassingly brave enough to give that to someone and invite them to an Easter service? Because you love them. Because you want them to have life. What might happen if we do that? What might happen? As we close, I, I woke up this morning 
and I, my talk was done and I wake up on Sundays and I just pray and I kind of parse through the last part of my message and, and when I woke up this morning, I, I just felt the Holy Spirit strongly speaking to me and he says, Josh, I want you to tell people this morning why we're doing this. Why are we doing this? And almost before I could say, I don't know what to tell them, he said, read Re Revelation 19 to them. So I opened it up and I was like, oh man, God, you're so good. So I just want to read that for you. It's not going to be on the screen. I want you to stand with me as I read this passage. This is why we do evangelism, why we do faith sharing straight from God's word. Here's what it says. Revelation 19.6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of many peals of thunder, all crying out, hallelujah. Everybody say hallelujah at the same time. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And then the angel turned to me and said, John, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. May we invite others because we have been invited. Let me pray. God, thank you that you love us, that you woo and pursue, Lord, that you have invited us in so that we're not out in the cold and the wet and the dark, but we're inside by the fire. And Lord, forgive us whenever we are okay with, content with, complacent enough to leave people outside in the rain. Would you inspire us? Would you give us courage? And would you help us to be more like Jesus? Lord, we love you. We worship you this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Here's my encouragement for you. We're going we're gonna to end with a worship time. During this part of our service every week, we have communion that's available in the back. And, and what we encourage you to do is when you feel ready, most people, it's like a song. Okay, we had a song, I'm ready now. But to examine your heart, examine your heart, to ask God, Man, God, God, what do I need to confess to you? What do I need to repent to you? To not go to the table in an unworthy way. And, and, and I would encourage you also, don't go alone. This is what it, communion assumes community, not just with God, but with each other. And so go with people to the table. I would also say this, if you feel a nudging to go to someone you don't know, this is as safe a place as, as there is to do this kind of thing. I just talked about it this morning. Maybe a Bible verse has been ringing through your head this morning. Maybe you feel like there's a song lyric or a word and you just see someone. I would encourage you, go pray for someone you don't know. Because maybe God wants to use you to chisel. Chisel here this morning. If you feel comfortable doing that, we'll also have staff and different people in the back help and pray. But let's do that right now. Let's sing. Let's pray. Let's take communion. Let's worship this Jesus who is worthy of our praise.